Four or five, six turns, and I started to feel nauseous and then come out of it and then I would go up again. And at that moment there was chaos all around. Uh, the radio got alive, the task was stopped. Some pilots decided to fly straight on. I saw them, uh, that was not the best option because they got sucked up really hard into the surrounding cells. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you so much for joining us again here on the podcast. If it's your first episode with us, I hope you enjoyed and come back to check out our future episodes. And while you're waiting, you can check out our large library of guest pilots sharing their soaring adventures from all over the world. You can even check out some of those pictures they submitted to on SoaringTheSky.com. On today's episode, we head to Belgium to chat with Wim de Croke, a competition paraglider pilot with over 1,000 hours. Before finding his sweet spot in the cockpit of a sailplane, Wim competed a lot. He was ranked second in the serial class at the British Open in Spain in 2019, third overall at Mozilla Open in France, also in that same year. His best soaring season in a paraglider, he logged over 140. 40 hours. Now, these are just some of his accomplishments. Wim will share some of those experiences at those competitions, like the time he ended up being stuck between two thunderstorms and how he managed to escape and land unharmed. Another time, he found himself landing in a swamp and soon standing in his underwear, pulling off leeches from his body. Wim has learned a lot about soaring and talks about how it has made his transition to a glider much easier and what we all can learn from his amazing journey. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Wim, welcome to Soaring the Sky. How are you doing? Fine. Uh, hi, Chuck. Uh, enjoying a nice Saturday afternoon here in Belgium. So, uh, yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, beautiful. And I want to hear more about where you are a little bit here later in the podcast. So how did your soaring adventure begin? Well, how did your aviation story begin? Well, then we have to go back to 2006. Um, at that time, um, I was joining an adventure holiday with my uh, wife in the French Alps. So we were staying in this like lovely remote um, house in the mountains. And then during the day, we would... Um, do this paragliding course with the French paragliding school. Ah, beautiful. And yeah, it was a basic course. So uh, five days or six days of flying with one reserve day uh, in case of bad weather. And the first three days we were on the training hill uh, trying to run off the hill with the paragliding above our head. And then the aim of that week was to do a first solo flight, of course, with radio guidance from a high hill, uh, which we uh, successfully did. So, yeah, it was a very nice way to discover this aviation uh, sport. You literally jumped right into aviation, right? <laughs> yeah, somehow, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do you go from wanting to fly to sticking a wing on your back and jumping off a hill? I mean, that, that had to have been pretty exciting and lots of adrenaline. How, how did it feel? Um, well... To start with the French uh, paragliding school, uh, and yeah, it suited me and my wife very well. Um, they had this like very laid back approach. So typical French instructors wearing flip flops, tent, and very laid back uh, approach, but still with a focus on safety. And it was all about feeling good and feeling comfortable. Uh, so you didn't have to do that first flight uh, if you didn't feel up to it. And also, compared to flying sailplanes uh, with a paraglider, um, 
there's not much added value in flying a tandem paraglider. You have to fly on your own. So with a paraglider, yeah, the beginning can be a bit more dramatic because you're basically, your big flight is alone first. But they did it very well. And I remember they had like this made up 10 point checklist where basically they run through the basic stuff like helmet attached and uh, leg strap closed. But they made just more uh, 10 more things to come up with like a left shoe tight, right shoe tight. And I remember standing on the hill on that first big flight. Uh, it was like an 1800, no, 800 meter top to bottom uh, overflying a lake in no, the nice. morning. So with that air and uh, the view was lovely. So it was quite safe in hindsight. So I was doing this 10 point checklist and uh, the instructor on launch was like, Wim, you forgot number 10. And I said like, guys, really? I'm standing on the hill strapped in ready to go. <laughs> What was number 10? And he said, like, smile. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then run off the hill. And yeah, it was nice. Uh, wow. Experience. So you would go on to fly paragliders a lot. So t- tell us about that. Yeah, that was my first touch with the sport. Uh, and then I only did it in holidays the first year. So I went back to that French paragliding school uh, for two more years. So... Uh, continued training only in summer holidays so i got my flying license in 2008 and then from there on in the beginning i only did like 20 30 hours a year just discovering the belgian sites it wasn't until like 2014 ish maybe 2015 that i really figured out that hey if i want to progress flying competitions is a good way to do it and fast forward to like 2019, 2020, I was ranking up between 120, 150 flying hours a year. Wow. I'm just shy of 1,000 flying hours now, uh, flying paragliders all over the world. Yeah. Wow. And a beautiful part of the world. I can't imagine some of the sights you get to see. Yeah. And uh, so I have the, yeah, the luck to live in Europe. So uh, the Alps are only an eight hour drive south. Um, so that's nice. And then with a the paraglider, logistics are very simple. So it's just a backpack of around 20 to 25 kilograms, depending on what you stuff in there. So in winter, I did two competitions in Colombia, South Africa, Mexico. Oh, so nice. there was no real winter layoff if if you were up to that. So yeah, nice, nice way to, to fly the world. Yeah. What was one of your most memorable flights, good or bad in a paraglider? What, what did you learn from it? Um, well, let me think out loud here for a while. Oh, there are so many good memories. Uh, I remember landing in a swamp in Colombia, which was not very nice, but fun. Oh. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds a uh, little, little scary. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was okay. It was only knee deep. What else was there? Uh, getting welcomed by two young brothers wearing sombreros, riding a horse in Mexico in a remote village near a volcano. Oh, wow. Yeah, getting a flyby hello from sailplanes while cruising the Belgium skies. And he was doing wingovers next to me. Ah, oh, <laughs> nice. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember once taking off from a Belgian site. Uh, and yeah, Belgium is not very big, of course. So we easily crossed borders and I landed near Rams, which is the Champagne region, landed near a Champagne farmer, was invited to his house. We started uh, tasting Champagne and uh, while I was waiting for the retrieve driver, uh, we emptied quite some glasses of Champagne and I came home very late <laughs> that day uh, with a few bottles of Champagne in my backpack. So it was very nice as well. The one that stood out, uh, I think it was when I got nearly sucked up in a thunderstorm in Macedonia. That was, yeah. And maybe I will go for that one because there are some lessons learned in that story as well. So if you're fine with it, I'll tell that story. Absolutely. Love to hear that one. Okay. So um, what year is this? Can't exactly remember. I think somewhere 2016, 17-ish. I traveled to Macedonia for the British Open, uh, which was a rather high uh, competition level field at the time i was flying a two-liner which is a competition wing and with paragliders the weight range uh, does matter so you have a minimum and a maximum weight range that one was until 115 kilograms 
I was flying um, competition harness as well with two reserve parachutes, uh, so a heavy pack. And yeah, I was quite high in the weight range already, like 114-ish. So if I would add my camel back to the pack, then I would be at the max weight range, which kind of kills the climbing of the climb ratio, if you want, uh, as well. So it has an impact. So that morning, I remember um, having breakfast in the hotel and they had like a nice big uh, breakfast room overlooking the valley with like big windows. And we could immediately see that the sky was overcast. Uh, so I had a breakfast, uh, uh, enjoyed a few cups of coffee, went back to the hotel room uh, because the buses that would shuttle to lunch were f still a few hours away. So got my kit ready, radio charged, uh, double checking everything. Uh, and I double checked Top Meteo and the day was forecasted uh, to have very light climb rates like 0.5 meters per second. But also at the same time, uh, the day was forecasted with uh, a fair chance of thunderstorms. But having flown the Alps quite some time, it's like summertime, there are big like thermals around everywhere and you have like this, those big mountains. So in summer, if you, yeah, there always, there's always risk for thunderstorm left and right, isn't it? So I wasn't too concerned about that. So I was looking at my paragliding kit and I was overthinking it like, hey, where can I save like around one kilogram of weight? Uh, and I thought like, hey, I'm having this um, NTG shoot that weights 800 grams, maybe I can leave that one out. And an anti-G shoot, that's what we as paraglider pilots use to get down very quickly. <laughs> Obviously, we don't have like uh, air brakes. Um, so if we want to get down, what we most of the time do is like 360 degrees. Uh, but if you do that uh, steep bank 360 degrees, uh, it's like swinging a bucket of water around. Uh, so you end up with some G-forces that can go up to like two and a half, maybe three Gs if you're really aggressive on, on those turns. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I don't cope very well with G-forces. I'm quite tall and I'm doing uh, endurance sports like jogging and bike riding. But I thought, yeah, I don't need this G-shoot with the forecast. So let's leave it. And I remember standing at the door at my hotel room and I left the G-shoot on the hotel bed like thinking... Okay, when I come back in the evening, then I immediately, I immediately see it and then I can put it back in my uh, equipment for the next day so it won't uh, linger around in my room. So long story short, uh, we were shuttled to lounge, uh, task briefing, uh, the day was overcast and the meet director said like a medio mediocre task, 20 kilometers north somewhere to take a waypoint in the mountains and then the goal line was somewhere in the middle of the valley coming back south for another 30 kilometers. So that's 50 kilometers. From a gliding point of view, if you multiply those distances with four to five, depending on what ship you fly, then yeah, that would give you an indication on how big that task was uh, for paragliders. Yeah, and we got in the air and the star gaggle, oh, it was really tense. Uh, competition field was 120 pilots. So we were all in this in those light conditions, flying very close, uh, not going up very well. There were people dumping water ballast. There were even guys uh, sipping on their camel bags and spitting the water bag out to get as light as possible on their wings. So that oh, kind yeah. of day. <laughs> yeah. And it took us a lot of effort to take that most northerly waypoint, scraping the tree line through the mountain ridges. There was not much of an anabatic flow on the mountainside as well. And I was in the second gaggle and I saw the lead gaggle tagging the northerly waypoint and they chose the same route back uh, because normally the mountain route is the fastest route, isn't it? And I was like, no way, guys. Uh, I have been touching trees for one hour and a half to get here. I'm not going to fly back through the mountains. Uh, and luckily for me, in that second gaggle, we all had the same ID, so we just turned south, uh, taking the valley route. And at that time, the sky was opening from time to time, so there was some sunshine on the ground, and I thought, like, this might actually work because the mountainside was in the shadows or was shadowed out, and the, the valley, there, there was some sun, so I thought, like, okay, if the air is unstable enough, that might give us lifty lines all the way back to go, which kind of was what happened uh, for the first, like, half an hour. 
and we were keeping a close eye on the lead gaggle back north in the mountains. And yeah, I think uh, what happened that day was it was so shaded out that uh, the air was feeding into the valley. So those guys, the lead gaggle, landed out. And all of a sudden I realized like, hey, Wim, you're in the lead gaggle now in the British Open on a straight course line to go like, you're ace, man. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, but it's aviation sport, isn't it? So you're hero next uh, one moment and you're zero the next moment. So <laughs> that's what literally happened. Um, so we continued that flight and the patches of sunshine got bigger. So the sky opened up a bit. And what we could see was what that the sky was really overdeveloped. So we had like big cumulonimbus clouds embedded in the gray. At that moment, I started to feel uncomfortable, like, oh, this is like, this is getting dodgy. But uh, you're in a competition and you're surrounded with other pilots. So I thought like, okay, let's continue a bit. I can still spiral down later on if I don't like this anymore. Uh, and then all of a sudden, that was my first thought. Somebody on my left-hand side on the course line, I thought he's taking a picture with a flashlight until the thunder came five seconds later. Uh, so we had a big thunder cell dropping rain on the left-hand uh, oh. side of the, the valley in the mountains. Wow. And the radio came alive. Uh, people feeding the meter actor with information like, hey, this is pilot number because you're giving a pilot number. Uh, I'm seeing this, this is my position. And by that time, I was not trying to stay up anymore. Uh, so I was not flying the most lifty lines anymore. It was just like a natural reaction. So I was like, okay, I don't like this anymore. Uh, but the air started to go up very easily by that time. Uh, and a few moments later, I figured out that on the right-hand side of the course line, so on the other side of the valley, there was also a thunderstorm developing and already uh, producing lightning. Oh. Mm. So I figured out at that moment, uh, I thought like, okay, we're flying in this valley um with lifty lines so the valley has some kind of energy in it if those storms those cells start dropping rain then that cold airflow might might flow into the valley and then the air only has one way to go and that's up and we're in the middle of this so i called out my pilot number and my position and i said like this is pilot can't recall my pilot number anymore Level three, which basically means in paragliding competitions like unsafe, I decide to go uh, and land. So I started to do spirals. Uh, but by that time, uh, everything was going up by more than three meters a second. So mm. I would do a spiral and then four or five, six turns, uh, started to feel nauseous and then come out of it. And then I would go up again. Um, and at that moment, there was chaos all around. Uh, the radio got alive. The task was stopped. Some pilots decided to fly straight on. I saw them. Uh, that was not the best option because they got sucked up really hard into the into the sky, into the surrounding wow. cells. Mm -hmm. Later that evening, we found out that those pilots, uh, they had to continue uh, straight on for more than 70 kilometers, and they ended up in uh, Greece, so crossing oh. the border. Wow. <laughs> the, the retrieve crew had... <laughs> quite some issues because Macedonia is not part of the EU and they had to collect pilots that somehow ended up in the European Union without passport. So that also wasn't Oh, nice. man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and other pilots around me, they started to do spirals as well. Uh, and I saw their G-shoots coming out. And that was when that image of that G-shoot lying on the hotel bed jumped in my head again. I was like, well, Wim, you screwed that up properly, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's always like when you're feeling endangered that you can go the extra mile. So I pushed as hard as I could and released uh, the 360 degrees about 100 meters above the ground, picked the biggest field that I could find. Uh, and then when I released uh, or came out of the 360, I was going up again at four meters a second by that time. Mm. Trees were waving all around, so I had to spiral again under 50 meters above the ground. And I was flying backwards at that time. So my wing had a 
trim speed of like 40 kilometers an hour and i was going backwards at more than 12 kilometers an hour Mm. with the upgust coming in as well so but yeah long story short i landed safely i didn't even bother packing my wing and just stuffed it in the backpack uh well doing that the the sky opened and uh it started to to really like pour rain and hail and stuff like that wow walked to the middle of the field next to another pilot who landed there and we like gave this man hug to each other like we survived this yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah got to the road and the the cars were stopped uh indicating with their four indicators because it was too dangerous to drive because yeah it was pouring like hell and we walked in the middle of the road soaked to our underpants (laughs) to the nearest (laughs) pub and had a beer (laughs) wow so the reason i come up with this story is like what I my takeaway from that was like participating in a competition. It's not an excuse to stop doing what you always did as a pilot. So we have a certain degree of experience, and you kind of develop, at least that's my experience, an inner voice uh, that keeps you out of troubles most of the time. When that voice starts to speak with you in a competition environment don't get caught into the herd mentality and listen to it that was my biggest takeaway from that and after that competition i did a few other competitions where i did exactly that so when i would feel like okay i'm not feeling comfortable anymore i remember something like that in the swiss alps i was caught in a valley i didn't know what the wind was doing i didn't understand the conditions and I decided to go and land and sometimes I did that and the task would be stopped 20 minutes later so that might have been a good decision and then other times nothing happened and the other pilots continued to go and I was stuck in the retrieve bus and came home late and they were having this their war stories about the competition day and I would have to live with my decision but yeah that's the beauty of the sport isn't it you're have to make your own decisions and try to keep yourself safe while doing this. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. sport. So, yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Thanks for that story. That was, it's amazing. Glad it all turned out. Wow. Okay. So we're going to move on to gliders. That is our main focus here on the podcast, but I could honestly listen to you tell stories all day about the paragliding. That's, that's some crazy stuff, but we are curious about how you got inspired to jump into sailplanes after you had so many hours under a paraglider wing. How did that happen? Um, Well, for me, there are three main reasons uh, for switching from flying paragliders to flying sailplanes. Um, I'll put them in in order uh, from least important to most important. So the first reason was if you want to exploit the max out of a flying day uh, or exploit the max potential out of a flying day, then my preference in Belgium at least would be uh, flying sailplanes. Uh, We have small hills in Belgium, especially in the south part. Uh, That's the only part where we have hills. So the smallest hill we have, it's like 80 meters top to bottom. That's 8-0. You need some kind of wind hitting that hill to maintain your altitude and soar that until you catch a thermal and get away. I think the biggest height difference we have, it's like 220 meters, something like that. So you can go and decide to go flying on any given day with like the most epic forecast. And then you end up in the hill and the wind is not 100% on the hill or the conditions are a bit off. That can mean uh, as a paraglider pilot that you won't fly that day. You will try a few times to get off the hill, end up landing uh, and then have to walk up again. There have been days that I went out trying to get uh, a nice flying day uh, with an epic forecast. And then you drive two hours with your car, uh, do a few attempts. And yeah, the forecast was a bit off and you have to drive home another two hours, not having flown. If I compare that with flying sailplanes, it's like on any given day, even with a mediocre forecast, I ended up flying to the gliding club, joined the morning brief, and then whenever I felt up to it or the, the plane was uh, available, I would take an aerotow and 
that could be 500 meters or 750, whatever you felt up to, and they will put you in a thermal. It's much easier and you're much more likely to get away and actually fly. So another reason was that I experienced the dark side of the sport. Let's put it like that. So let's be honest here. Paragliding is still an extreme sport somehow. There are the odd accidents and yeah, they can be with severe, uh, severe consequences. So I've never had an accident until, or an incident until 2020. So I started 2006. So that's 14 years without any incident whatsoever. Maybe the odd uh, rougher landing, but still, if I can't remember, then it wasn't that much of an issue, I reckon. But um, in January 2020, while uh, participating in a competition in Colombia, I had to throw my reserve for the first time in my paragliding career. Yeah, not going into all of the details, but what basically happened was a mixture of uh, being preoccupied with work, dealing with emails while waiting in the line to pass customs in Colombia. So yeah, a lot on my head, uh, not flying related. Uh, being jet lagged, not having uh, drunk enough water, so being dehydrated a bit on launch, uh, being overconfident, not paying attention. And yeah, that mixture, uh, 2000 meters, I got a collapse and uh, went into a locked in spiral. And I saw the black tunnel closing in. So that's when you are uh, about to pass out because of the G forces. Mm, wow. I never thought uh, about throwing my reserve. It was pure instinct. So I was like, oh, look at this package. I threw my reserve. <laughs> so it opened then yeah two kilometers to reflect on life before coming back to earth because i was at 2000 meters so Mm. i walked away from that physically unharmed but i guess it might have left some mental scars anyway so that was my first touch with the dark side and then in spring 2020 uh, only a few months later i was soaring at my local site in belgium which i have soared for several times and i had this like new wing which was white uh, white color and yeah i tried to go cross country it didn't work and i had to land out so there was like this big brown uh, plowed field uh, and i thought like wow you can put a glider in here but uh, i'm flying this white wing so my wing might get dirty what else is yeah. here and yeah. there was like this uh, huge tree line with big oak trees a very small grassy uh, field next to it and then barbed wire. And then you had a huge uh, brown plowed field. So instead of picking the huge field, I decided somehow to uh, park my glider or to try it to park it in between the barbed fence wire and the tree line. And while doing so, my wingtip caught a tree and I basically fell from like six meters high luckily i walked away from that because the hill was kind of slope sloping down and uh, my wingtip got released from the tree in the process but that was pure being overconfident so that was a stupid mistake i yeah still kind of mad at myself uh, till today that that kind of happened so that was incident number two and then that year it was not the best year was it Uh, i had another incident (laughs) In summer of 2020, I was, uh, so only a few months after the spring incident, I was doing a competition in France with an inexperienced organization. So it was their first competition. It was in Annecy, which is a beautiful location in the Northern Alps in France. So it's a lake surrounded by mountains and yeah, very nice uh, place to fly paragliders. And that day they had set a cat's cradle task into the mountains and then landing back at the lake. And during the task briefing, uh, one of the guys paragliding competition, who also was in the competition, he pointed out like, hey guys, I'm uh, pushing this task into my instruments and I have a library of objects in my instrument and there's apparently a cable running from the valley floor to the top of the ridge where a waypoint is, uh, has been put. Oh, wow. The radius around that waypoint was three kilometers. And 
Speaking of that cable, that was a cable car size cable, which was used to pull equipment up to the mountain hut. And the answer of the task committee was like, yeah, we looked into this and from our experience, everybody will be flying above the ridge and there's no need to uh, put a bigger radius around that waypoint. Okay. Mm. I mean, I'm part of a of a competition and I'm paying uh, for being uh, guided into uh, flying in this region. That's part of the deal, isn't it? So they know better than I. So everybody like accepted that and then the competition task started and it was one of those days where um, the thermals would be over the mountains. Yeah, they always are, uh, isn't it? But uh, they would shade out and then the cloud shade would stay a long time above the mountains. So you would end up with like dead air above the mountains. So it was one of those days where flying into the sun worked much better because you could uh, get those small uh, developing thermals. And then, yeah, that was the tactic of that day. So I tried to attack that waypoint uh, with a mountain hut uh, for the first time, but uh, flew into dead air and had to go back into the sun for a few kilometers and re-attack it. Uh, and I saw the lead gaggle, they were a bit higher and they uh, attacked the waypoint, came back. And so we were a few gaggles behind the lead gaggle and our gaggle was unlucky. So most of us ended, be- ended up below the ridge. And I was like, okay, I don't like this uh, flying too close to the uh, tree line, uh, hugging the rocks, uh, because if I end up in sync, then if I don't give myself enough of a margin, then I might end up in a tree. So I kind of veered off towards the valley. And then I remembered like, hey, but I'm not far from this waypoint anymore. Uh, wasn't there and while I was thinking that the radio came alive and people f- started to figure out that the cable was right in front of us people in front of me some of them never noticed the cable they just flew underneath it other flew over it we basically all got lucky I had the cable right in front of me and I had to spin the glider around and fly away oh, wow. so I said okay that's it uh, let's go back to uh, goal don't fancy uh, tagging any other waypoints here. Uh, had enough of this. Packed my wing, had a beer in the in the goal field, and then my idea was to walk up to the organization and point out, like, "Hey guys, this was this was not the best best plan, was it?" Yeah. That was all all I needed, like just a confirmation, like, "Okay, we messed up. Uh, sorry, guys." But they just laughed with it, like, "Hey, nobody touched the cable, and uh, what's the problem? Are you complaining no, here no. because?" Uh, uh, you scored zero because you didn't tag the waypoint and said, no, guys, I mean, this is about safety. Yeah. So, yeah, and that was the issue with all the other pilots as well. It was like, that's the only thing we needed the next day was like a task committee that openly said like, hey, guys, sorry that happened. We screwed up. Let's have fun again and focus on safety. But yeah, don't don't silence uh, the issue. That was... Yeah, wow. Yeah. So... I figured out, well, 2020 is not the best year. Maybe it's time. I already uh, was looking into flying sailplanes uh, for a few years already, but not really taking the bait. And yeah, the third reason why I switched was, and I will call this peer pressure. So I started to compete mainly because I wanted to advance as a pilot. And before you know it, you somehow because I did in the end like five, six competitions a year. Uh, and then your pilot level just goes up very steeply. Uh, yeah. Because you see every mistake you make. It's like if you fly on your own, you don't have any other guys in the air where you can make the connection with yourself. But for example, in a competition environment, if you're in a st- start gaggle and you decide to uh, cross the start line uh, and other people are higher, then you can see immediately the effect. Just a stupid example. But... I mean, you can see and compare your own performance. So yeah, it's a quickly a quick learning environment. I would put it like that. So that was the main reason I joined competitions. But yeah, at certain moment, certain moment, you start to have some sort of results, and then before you know it, you're dragged into WhatsApp groups and uh, 
the Belgian Federation is contacting you and and from an ego point of view that's all fine but the thing that bothered me for example was uh, I once did a competition after a long winter break just drove to the Alps uh, my uh, goal that competition was just to get back in the game you know and I had a mediocre day ending up halfway the competition field uh, that day halfway the scoring list but I met some friends that I hadn't seen for a long time it was just after the COVID uh, story so we were able to travel again so there was a nice atmosphere at the goal field nice weather nice views having a beer with the uh, guys you haven't seen uh, for a while so having fun you know and then yeah, all of a sudden your cell phone starts receiving whatsapp messages like hey win don't feel bad about today. Tomorrow's another day. I'm like, seriously, guys, I'm here to have fun. It's not about points all the time, is it? So, yeah, and I think those three reasons uh, combined all together said, okay, let's have a break from this and let's go all in and, and try something new and sailplanes and let's see how far we can get uh, and go from, from here on. So, yeah. So how was the transition from paragliders to sailplanes um the hardest things for me were uh the use of stick and rudder versus weight shift and use of your arms right so it's more mechanical uh piloting a sailplane and then maintaining the same airspeed uh because a few centimeters on the stick can make uh yeah quite some difference uh, yeah. in airspeed, isn't it uh flying a pattern <laughs> i remember the instructors <laughs> in the uh in the early days they were like i was asking questions like do i really have to fly a pattern they were like what <laughs> <laughs> because with a paraglider i mean i can stuff it in in a football stadium if you want uh, right I, we're not bothered with flying patterns so it's like do i really have to do this <laughs> and they were oh, like my. yeah Wim, you have to do this man <laughs> okay then <laughs> um what else is there i'm still struggling to get a good feeling for the glide ratio. So luckily, uh, there are other flying buddies in the gliding club that also uh, fly paragliders. And sometimes we fly together in a twin. And then I'm like, hey, we're way too far from the field now. There's no way we can go back. And they're like, Wim, seriously? If we turn back now, we will arrive at 700 meters. And I'm like, no, no way. We will be landing out. (laughs) And then a few times... They actually did that. It's like, okay, Wim, you f- you're flying now. Grab the stick and fly right. back to the field. And then we arrive at not 700, but 800 meters. I'm like, okay, guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is embarrassing. <laughs> oh. yeah. Wim, can you give us all the details of the current glider port you fly out of and what you like about it? Yes. So before I uh, started gliding, um, I looked around quite a lot. Um, so I have the possibility to join French-speaking gliding clubs or Dutch-speaking gliding clubs doesn't really matter for me. Uh, for me, the focus uh, was about having a good atmosphere uh, because yeah. Yeah, that, that's for me, that's a good learning environment. I, and, and, and I do rather well if, if I'm surrounded by people that like have a nice approach to things. So that Absolutely. was my main focus. Uh, and I ended up in, um, yeah, it's called... Balen Keiheuvel. It's in the northern part of uh, Belgium. It's one hour drive from where I live. And it's a 700 meter long grassy field, uh, 0725. And it's surrounded by sandy underground. So it has good thermal potential on any given day. So yeah, I, I like it very much. A very nice atmosphere. Nice. So what are your goals in soaring in the future? Are you going to stick to sailplanes? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, uh, when I went over to the club, I said, "Like, okay, guys, I'm serious about this." And they said, "Yeah, yeah." Uh, so that winter, I did all my theoretical uh, stuff. So before even my first uh, training flight, I already had done the theoretical part. My goal was to push hard. So I started somewhere late January. And somewhere late August, I got my uh, SPL. So, yeah. Nice. Congratulations. 
Yeah, thank you. And I've, yeah, for still, uh, I'm happy to be on this podcast, but I'm the definition of a rookie. So <laughs> I have 36 flying hours solo. So uh, yeah, who am I to comment on uh, flying sailplanes? My goal is, um, well, I did do one like very nice flight in an Arcus flying 660 kilometers. Uh, somebody allowed me to go with him. And I was like, wow, this this is what I want to do. It's like going out big on any given day. And for me, it's not about the numbers. It's about being able to come back uh, to your home field and being out all day. And, and also for paragliding, it's like the best part of any given flight for me. It's like you're halfway into the flight and you're f- maybe a little bit tired already a little bit thirsty, but you're tuned into the conditions, you're flying your craft, and yeah, there's you're in a remote place. Uh, it's not like you're doing a team sport, like playing soccer, or, or, or you're alone up there. You're responsible for yourself, and it's all about adventure and trying to realize your own potential on any given day. It's like playing chess against nature and yourself, isn't it? It's like, yeah, yeah. That's for me is it's and the charm is there in flying paragliders, but also in flying sailplanes because I didn't knew before will that aspect be still there. But I've done flights, we yeah, have four hour plus solo flights. Oh, uh, I have to stay around the airfield still, but that feeling of being tuned into the conditions and yeah, it's still there. So for me, my main focus will be on flying sailplanes and. Hopefully, uh, flying a solo glide next season. Most probably, that will be an LS4 because I don't fit in any other wings. I'm quite tall. And yeah, hopefully, go cross country and see what's possibly from there on. Nice. Sounds like a good plan. When we always like to give our guests the opportunity to give a shout out to those, of course, that were instrumental in their aviation journey. So, this is your chance. Okay. Thank you. So, first of all, my wife and family, because we as soaring pilots uh, <laughs> it's not always we're not the most easy people to live with uh, because we want to go out on uh, when we have plans they always change because the weather is uh, playing is, is playing ball as well so big shout right. out to my wife and family uh, allowing me to go out as often as i can and all the paragliding and sailplane pilots who invested time in making me a better pilot i mean yeah, really appreciate it. Like, I think that's the role in our small community as well. Like, we have to look out for each other and comment on flying styles and giving tips. And yeah, we all benefit from that, I think. Absolutely. All right. How about a lightning round? Are you up for it? Okay. Shoot. <laughs> all right. <laughs> if you could pick just one, what glider port or region would you be, would be at the top of your bucket list? to go soaring and why um can't come up with a name yet but having flown paragliders quite a lot in the alps the alps is definitely on my bucket list i have to uh, break myself a bit and my goal for next season is to really like uh, become a better pilot but as soon as turmaling and landing and all that kind of stuff is like a non-issue anymore and you're not like really thinking about that then I will start exploring the Alps. I think, uh, yeah, any given airport would do. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. What's the highest altitude you've ever been in a glider or a paraglider, and where was it? Uh, in a glider, it was this season. We had like an exceptional weather uh, this summer in Belgium. It was m- around 2,000 meters. Uh, and yeah, the, nice. our glider field is around, yeah just shy of sea level so that's quite that's quite nice in a paraglider it was around it was more than four thousand meters that was in spain yeah somewhere during summer uh very cold night temperatures and then if you have day temperatures running into the 40s with unstable air mass then (laughs) you have high cloud bases oh yeah they're popping you what's your favorite type of lift thermal wave ridge or convergence um for paraglider thermals and i'm really curious about flying conversion lines uh with sailplanes we sometimes do it with paragliders 
I've done it quite sometimes in uh, Spain as well. But you don't have the speed to profit as much as you would be able to profit from that kind of lift in a sailplane. So I'm really looking forward in exploring that kind of uh, lift in a sailplane. Wim, what's the strangest or most spectacular thing you have ever seen up in the air, whether it be in a paraglider or a sailplane? Uh, most spectacular thing? Well, I was attacked by a bird in Mexico. Does that count? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Tell me tell me about that. <laughs> well, um, yeah, somewhere during a competition in Mexico, uh, I was uh, doing a, a transition from one waypoint to another, and this bird showed up on the right-hand side of my wing. It started, like, making those high, creepy bird sounds. And it start, started to <laughs> dive for my paraglider wing. And <laughs> I tried to shout and uh, collapse the wing to uh, scare it away. Uh, but it had a few goes at my wing. And uh, I remember repairing, like, two, uh, yeah, two rips in my, in my, in my wing. So, yeah. Credit to the bird. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) What's the worst place you've landed out, whether in a paraglider or a sailplane, and why did it suck? Definitely the swamp in Colombia. Yeah, yeah. so I was in Colombia, and it was my first time. So I was flying that region like I would have done it uh, in Belgium, so pick the biggest green field. So that was what I did until I realized a few meters from uh, that field that, hey, what's this like strange reflection uh, of this field? (laughs) So like, oh man, this is a swamp. (laughs) So I I was able to like extend my glide until the edge but still ended up knee deep in a swamp, uh, swearing (laughs) all the time, walking out of it. And then... uh, I ended up in my underpants at a nearby nearby rock, uh, pulling off uh, blood suckers uh, out of my legs. I was like, "Oh dear!" <laughs> oh, yeah. wow! Uh, not the nicest uh, of experience. So, yeah, that would be my worst landing, I reckon. If you had to pick one thing for lower hour pilots trying to learn how to thermal more efficiently and effectively, what would your advice be to them? Um. Yeah, obviously it's all about airspeed and the guys in the gliding club, and I feel it myself as well with the sailplane now, uh, keeping the the angle of bank and not allowing the airspeed to, to run up, that, that's something I still have to, to really pay attention to. But yeah, going a bit further now into that question, what I did see in the past and maybe it's also a bit related to flying sailplanes it's like the way they teach people to become a pilot so in the old days and i'm talking 2006 now it was very easy to become a paraglider pilot you just joined this school they would do like a few training weeks with you and then signed off off you go but guess what the most dangerous part of any pilot's career is when you're exploring and you don't know what you don't know. And I'm not saying this like that. It's like, that's the biggest risk, isn't it? So you're putting yourself in compromised Absolutely. places and you don't know what's really dangerous about that. So uh, nowadays, yeah. I that is changing. At least in Belgium, I see like the schools, they're providing like guided weeks with their students. So they have their license, but they provide like guided weeks into the... Uh, into the Alps and they look after them and try to fly a toss together. So that is something that I will do next season as well. Like have a few uh, flights in a double seater, try to go cross country uh, just to learn. You know, if you're always on your own, you learn as well, but sometimes you have to switch and fly with other pilots and, yeah, they can see stuff that you're doing wrong before uh, a bad habit kicks in. So, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Okay, money, no object, and you could only spend it on a glider. What dream glider would you buy, and what do you like about it? Yeah, something with a fess. 
<laughs> yeah, right? avoiding to have to call my wife uh, late evening like honey uh can you come to this field <laughs> <laughs> good luck yeah. with that. <laughs> so i think an ls8 neo with a fast that's something very nice i think <laughs> yeah oh yeah so you get to your pad after a long day of soaring in the summer heat what's the first thing you do take a shower drink a cold beverage of choice Look at your flight trace and start making notes of what you did wrong or flop on the bed and take a nap while still wearing your bucket hat. Uh, I would take care of the glider first, put it in the trailer, <laughs> and then go for a beer. <laughs> <laughs> did you get your bucket hat yet? Uh, what's that, a bucket hat? <laughs> you didn't get one no, yet, did you? No, no, no. <laughs> Wim, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I have had a blast talking to you. I appreciate you joining us. Okay. Thank you for uh, allowing me on the podcast. Uh... Absolutely. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at SoaringTheSky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.